Last year, as Russian bombs fell on Ukraine and the world watched in shock as Ukrainian fighters mounted a brave resistance to the invasion, a video surfaced online of Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky appearing to urge his troops to lay down arms. It was a forgery. A so-called deepfake, a video completely synthesized by computers using artificial intelligence deep learning algorithms. And for Francesca Panetta, director of the University of Arts London Storytelling Institute, seeing that AI forgery deployed as a weapon of disinformation marked the realization of a threat that she and her creative partner have been trying to warn society about for years. By destabilizing our landscape of truth, it means that you can plausibly deny everything. And that is what we're more scared about than the deepfakes themselves. Because even in just the last several weeks, deepfake technology has taken massive steps forward in terms of its power and its accessibility. And for strategic communicators in public relations and marketing roles, we are going to have to start responding to this threat this year, according to Dr. Hani Farid at UC Berkeley. Inside of and outside of your company. You've got to control reputation. People are going to try to damage your reputation. And here's the thing, everybody today is vulnerable. So in this episode, a primer on the brave new post-truth world into which we're all being dragged as strategic communicators and as human beings. We explore the institutional threats posed by deepfake tech, case studies from the front lines of Eastern Europe, how to start planning for your first deepfake attack because they are coming. And we talked to one young woman who was dragged into the deepfake fight by the most despicable sort of assault on her reputation. It absolutely destroys your life and it's a life sentence. It's a permanent misrepresentation that's publicly accessible for everyone, forever, in perpetuity. I'm Dusty Weiss from PodCamp Media. This is Lead Balloon, a podcast about compelling tales from the world of PR, marketing, and branding told by the well-meaning communications professionals who live them. Thanks for tuning in. Make sure you're subscribed in Apple Podcasts for these monthly tales about communication, either in a historic context or sometimes about how the business is changing as we speak. You know, sometimes when I do this show, the end result surprises me. I know I've alluded to it in the past, but before I got into PR and marketing, I was a news reporter. And so when I dig into a story... I feel compelled to follow it wherever it takes me. This episode is by far the most shocking example of this phenomenon. I had not planned to do a whole episode on deepfakes until I talked to Fran Panetta and Halsey Burgund for last month's episode about the greatest speech never given. Quick recap, Richard Nixon's speechwriter had to write remarks to be delivered in the event that the Apollo 11 moon landing ended in disaster. It is an incredible piece of writing that was lost to history for 30 years, was rediscovered, and is now internet famous. And in 2019, Fran and Halsey partnered with MIT to create a short film and installation centered around a deepfake version of Richard Nixon delivering this speech that he never actually delivered. The project won an Emmy, it went viral on the internet, but Fran and Halsey say the whole point of the thing was to warn people that deepfake technology posed a rising threat to society. We wanted to create a 
art installation and video that showed the public exactly what was possible using the most sophisticated technology at the time. We call it a complete deepfake because we manipulated both the audio and the video. So the video is actually a segment from Nixon's resignation speech that we painstakingly searched many, many of his speeches to find the speech that had the right sort of essence and, and tonality and just sort of somberness to it that he might have were he to deliver this very somber speech. That's called the target video. And that was what was manipulated visually by an artificial intelligence model to have his lips and you know everything associated with the lips move to voice different words, the words of the speech that we wanted him to deliver instead of the words that were actually delivered by him during his resignation speech. So the visual part was done by one AI model that could really just change the lips, leave everything else the same so that it would be as authentic as possible. Um, you know, all of his head motions, all of his looking up at the camera, looking down, all that kind of stuff remained the same, just the lips were changed. And then we had to produce a synthetic version of the audio as well to make a voice that sounds like Nixon come out of those the, the, the lips that were synced to that voice. So to do that, we needed a different artificial intelligence model, and we needed to train that one painstakingly on clips of Nixon. We gathered lots of Nixon speeches and sliced those into short clips, and then we had an actor voice those same clips and then we would send the pair of data into the artificial intelligence model so it would know the actor sounds like saying this thing and here's what Nixon sounds like saying this same thing. Then it can learn how to make the translation from the actor to Nixon's voice. So we did that for hundreds and hundreds of clips. And then we were able to, at that point, after the model trained itself, we were able to have the actor say at the speech that we wanted said, i.e. at the event of moon disaster speech, and then the model would output the same speech with the same performative qualities that our actor did, but in Nixon's voice. When we first made this project, we took it to the International Documentary Festival in Amsterdam and we built a, like a 1960s living room setting and we played this video on an old TV set. And it was really interesting watching audience members come by and see this video. To be honest, some of them couldn't even believe that it was a fake. And we, we had to be really careful about the messaging in, around the project, both as an installation and then when we later put it up online as, as a website, that our messaging was very direct and said, this is a deep fake and we're doing this to try and show you what's possible. But fast forward four years to present day and the deep fake tools that Fran and Halsey used in their Emmy-winning project are suddenly easily accessible to the masses. We've all heard the news stories about the disruptions caused by ChatGPT in recent months. But what this flood of new open source AI tools means from a deepfake perspective, Halsey says, is that what took him, Fran, and a team of experts months to accomplish with special software in 2019 can now be done by someone with no training for free in minutes on the right website. It's really, really incredible. And it is vastly easier now than it was back in 2019 when we were doing this work. But it's going to be very easy in not too many years, from not too many months probably, for people to create anything. I want to see a video of Dusty Weiss um, saying that he believes the Earth is flat and that he's going on an expedition to fall off the edge. It's kind of a crazy new world out there. And you really don't want to prevent 
totally legitimate uses of this technology as well. I mean, there are people in the world who want to get messages out and want to be heard who cannot, for their own safety, let it be known that it is them saying something or is them doing something. And those are wonderful use cases, which if we're legislating or if we're using technology, the nuance has to be built in and that's really, really difficult. So it, it's a thorny problem. It's not just ban deep fakes, you know, ban synthetic media. That's probably not possible and also not prudent. So if we now live in a world where anyone can log onto the internet and generate convincing audiovisual evidence of something that isn't true, where does that leave us as strategic communicators when we have the job of protecting the reputations of important people and institutions? Dr. Hani Farid is a professor at UC Berkeley with a joint appointment in computer sciences and the School of Information. Put that Venn diagram together and it makes him a leading authority on deepfakes and a frequent guest on CNN, NPR, all the biggies. And he says it's time for us strategic communicators to get to work. Like, right now, this is happening. Deepfakes, first, it's important to understand, is part of a continuum of being able to manipulate and create digital media. So think... Stalin airbrushing people out of photos to the modern age of Photoshop with people put one person's head on another person's body. Fast forward a few decades and now machine learning and artificial intelligence are being used to both manipulate and fully synthesize digital content. Let me give you some examples. Okay. You can go to a website called thispersondoesnotexist.com and it will true to its URL name, just show you an image of a person that doesn't exist. It was fully generated by a machine learning algorithm. You can go to another website and upload 60 seconds of you, Dusty, speaking, and then I can type whatever I want, and it will synthesize an audio of you saying whatever I want you to say. Go download another app, and you will be able to then create a video of you saying exactly those things. So image generation, video generation, audio generation, I can make people say and do things they never did. And all of that is being powered by machine learning and artificial intelligence. And the important part of that is that what used to be in the hands of the few people who had a lot of expertise in manipulating digital media, Hollywood studio, state-sponsored actors, is now in the hands of the many. We've automated it. We've democratized access to very sophisticated technology that can have many entertaining and interesting applications and many nefarious applications. Now, all of this could be used for creative and benign and fun things, or it can be used to destroy people and institutions. That's exactly right. So let's talk about where we are seeing the harm. So first of all, many great things. If you haven't seen it, go to YouTube and search for Nick Cage in The Sound of Music. It, it's fantastic. It's I'm Nick Cage twirling on the mountaintop singing, and it's the most brilliant thing I've ever seen on the internet. Um, go over to TikTok and look for Tom Cruise deep fake, and you will see uh, what looks to be Tom Cruise, and it is incredibly funny and clever. Hey, listen up, sports and TikTok fans. If you like what you're seeing, just wait till what's coming next. <laughs> but you are seeing deep fakes being used to commit large to small scale fraud. You are seeing deepfakes being used to push state-sponsored or institutional disinformation campaigns. We have the technology today to create a video of a CEO of a Fortune 500 company saying, in a private conversation, seemingly, our profits are going to be down 20%. I leak that on Twitter. 
goes viral in what, 30, 60 seconds? How much can I move a market? How much damage can you do to a stock price? And here's what's important to understand since we're on this topic is that it's not just that we now have technology in the hands of the many that can create and distort digital media, but it's that we can also distribute it to billions of people around the world instantaneously through social media. Half-life of a social media post is measured in minutes, not hours or days or weeks, which means you can do a lot of damage. And you and I both know that once something is on the internet, it never really comes down and you never, you never set the record straight. Right. And the internet is forever. The internet is forever for better or worse. And so we are seeing real harms in this technology. I think there are opportunities, but I think we can't ignore the harms. So now let's explore a very specific case study here. And and I'll preface this by saying about a year ago on this show, we spoke with a group of Ukrainian agency creatives about how they were waging what they called an information war against the Russians who invaded their homeland. And what we learned, what we know about warfare and international relations in the 21st century is that every war is now going to be fought on the digital information front. Uh-huh. How have we seen deep fakes and this new technology then used as a weapon in this type of warfare? Yeah, that's a great question. And I'm glad you brought this up. I think this has been one of the most troubling and interesting nefarious uses of deep fakes. And I, first of all, I completely agree with you that there is no future conflict that will not have a cyber component, whether that's cyber attacks or disinformation campaigns. And you have absolutely seen that in the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So what's so interesting about this case is that in the early days of the Russian invasion, President Zelensky said, he warned us, the Russians are going to create a deep fake of me and it's going to say, we surrender, put your arms down. I guarantee you, I will not do that. We we can now call this (laughs) pre-bunking. You get out ahead of it. And what happened is a couple months later, there was a video, in fact, pretty crude, but not terrible, of what seemed to be President Zelensky at a press conference saying, we give up, lay your arms down. That, of course, went viral on social media and it showed up on national television. Now, let's examine that for a moment, because I think that it's fascinating that you bring up this notion of pre-bunking here. And the fact that Zelensky and presumably his communications advisors uh-huh. thought ahead of time, this is something that's going to happen. We need to be prepared for this. Let's get out ahead of it. Yeah. What sort of a scenario would we be looking at had they not had that level of foresight? It's a really good question. It's sort of an unknown, right? I mean, one of the interesting things here is we only know about the cases we discover, right? So this thing went online. It showed up on television, probably had a minimal impact because it had been pre-bunked. It wasn't particularly good. And honestly, I think the Ukrainians probably knew better. But what about all the cases we don't discover? The reality is we don't know the denominator in this equation, And that's very tricky, but you could certainly imagine in the fog of war, let's say that this was released more timely, like during the heated battle, and it was just enough to create uncertainty already in a very uncertain time. Could it have had an impact? Sure. Of course it could have. By the way, you could play both sides of this. Somebody could release a video of President Biden saying, I've launched nuclear weapons against North Korea. How long before the North Korean dictator just panics and hits the button? Do I think that's likely? No. But it's also not out of the question. And that should really, really worry us. And here's the other thing, too, is that we are in the early days of this technology. This technology is only getting better. And it's getting better at a very rapid clip. Every few months, you see advances in the technology. So what was a fairly crude deep fake of President Zelensky in the early days of the Russian invasion, at the next invasion or during this current one, as we keep going, 
who knows how sophisticated they can get. Well, let's stay in Ukraine then, because we saw another deployment of this technology that you brought to my attention that I think illustrates just that, how rapidly that's evolving. And that was the deepfake application that was used of Kiev Mayor Vitaly Klitschko Uh in phone calls that he had with mayors in the cities of Berlin, Madrid, Vienna, and we don't even know. As you said, we don't know the denominator, uh, what other mayors they might have talked to here. But what happened? So this one is interesting because the previous version I was telling you about was an offline video. Somebody recorded it, posted on social media and national television. It's not interactive. It's not someone that you can talk to or answer questions with. That's right. And maybe we've grown somewhat suspicious of the images and the videos we see on YouTube and TikTok because we know they can be manipulated. But in this case... What happened is an imposter was on a Zoom call with, as you said, the mayors of Madrid, separately Berlin and Vienna, and had somewhere between a 15 and 20 minute call. And it looked and sounded like they were talking to the mayor of Kiev, but they weren't. It was an imposter. And what was amazing about that is live, real time, deep fake generation with you know reasonably sophisticated people, mayors of major cities in Western Europe, and they didn't know. And It looks like it was probably a prank. Nobody really has figured out what was going on here. And I don't think it did any real lasting harm, except for the following. You better believe the next time the mayor of Berlin gets on a Zoom call, they're going to be suspicious of who they're talking to. And with good good reason. So now, not only do I have to worry about everything I read online, everything I see online, now I have to worry when I'm talking with somebody live over a Zoom call, how do you know that person is real? Right. How do I know I'm talking to Dr. Hani Farid right now? Yeah, maybe he's a lazy bum and this is one of his grad students who just, you know, he couldn't be bothered to come to work today. You know, so I mean, it's going to sit with you a little bit, isn't it, Dusty? (laughs) Okay, so presuming then that this is the real Dr. Hani Farid, you've alluded to just how quickly this technology is evolving and how easy it is to access. But so much of the conversation around deepfakes to date is this sort of Wow, look at what someone has just used it for, sort of a thing. How far away is the day, really, when it becomes commonplace and and we just see deepfakes in the news every day? You know, if we were having this interview a month ago, I would have said, you're absolutely right, Dusty, we're not seeing it every day. I don't think that's true anymore. Let me give you a couple of examples. So first of all, you are starting to see small-scale fraud where people are calling parents, grandparents, spouses and saying, I'm in trouble, I've been arrested, I need money hand the phone over to uh, what they claim is a lawyer or police officer, and the whole thing is a scam. You're starting to see very sophisticated voice scams on the phones. But here's the thing, is just in the last two weeks, there has not been a single day that has gone by where I've not seen a fake image or fake audio or a fake video go viral on social media. Let me just give you a few examples. After the rumor of former President Trump's arrest, images showed up on Twitter with millions of views, which looked pretty convincing of him being escorted by the police. Just in the last week, every single day, I've been contacted by a reporter with an audio recording purportedly of President Biden on a hot mic saying something inappropriate about Trump, about Silicon Valley Bank, about China. Go down the list every single day what sounds like President Biden. Just yesterday, there was a fake image of what looked to be like Putin kneeling before Xi during the visit in Moscow. Another video of what looked to be Bill Gates claiming that COVID was a hoax and the vaccine was created so he can put tracking devices in people. This is now happening on a daily basis. And the reason is that the technology 
the companies that are now allowing you to clone voices, synthesize images, create videos, are making their services publicly available and freely available because there is a race to monetize generative AI and there's not a lot of thought being put into how these are being misused. So I think it's here and it is going to start accelerating from here. I think we are entering this inflection point. Look, the 2024 election is around the corner. I will be stunned if you do not see major examples of people creating fake content of candidates and of Biden and of Harris and so on and so forth. You know, Dr. Fareed, the next question that I have for you is what should we be doing as a society to limit the threat that deep fake technology poses? But the way that you lay it out on the table just like that, it sounds like there's not really anything that we can do. And we're just going to be at the mercy of this thing until society adjusts its expectations for the facts yeah. that we consume. There's two parts to this answer. One part is what can we do? And the other question is what will we do? So let's talk about the Ken part first, okay? So on the Ken part, the companies, the open AIs of the world, the mid journeys, the 11 labs, the companies that are creating the synthetic content could put guardrails on their technology. They could say, look, you wanna synthesize a voice, fine, but we're only gonna let you synthesize your voice. Or if you are going to synthesize somebody else's voice, we're gonna put some guardrails by watermarking the content, making sure we know who you are and what you are creating. There's another aspect of what we could do, which is to also authenticate real content, right? So one guardrail you want to put on is all the synthetic media, this generative AI, how do you protect it and make sure we can identify it upstream? But the other is, for example, well, when somebody really does take a video of a president or a candidate saying something inappropriate, how do I trust it? There are technologies, let me name one of them, it's called the C2PA, the Coalition for Content Provenance and Authentication. For full disclosure, I'm on their steering committee. It is a not-for-profit, multi-stakeholder, Adobe, Microsoft, Sony, BBC, hundreds of companies that are trying, that are building, I should say, a protocol that would allow that when you pick up your phone, it can determine who you are, where you are, when you are there, and cryptographically sign all of the information that you recorded, place that onto an immutable ledger so that downstream, if I record a video of police violence, human rights violations, the president saying something inappropriate, we have some guarantees that it's real. It's verifiable. Verifiable. Those things can be done. Now, what will be done? That's the more interesting question. <laughs> so what will be done? Probably nothing. And the reason is, is that there are billions of dollars flowing into the generative AI space. Companies are tripping over themselves to be first to dominate in this field. And we are making the same mistakes as the last 20 years. And that is we are moving fast and breaking things. And meanwhile, our government is nowhere on regulation. They don't even know what AI is. They're still trying to fix the problems from the last 20 years and we are lost. So I'm worried that we are moving so fast here without precautions. And here's the thing is that sometimes we develop technology and there are unintended consequences, right? There are sort of bugs in the system. This is not unintended. This is a feature. You can look at this technology today and say, this is exactly how it's going to be right, used. Right. This, this is, is what it was designed for. This is what it's designed for. And the fact that these companies, even the good ones, are moving so fast without the right guardrails, I think is reckless. And I don't think it is hyperbolic to say that these are potentially existential threats to society. If you can't trust the outcome of an election because people are creating fake images and video of voter fraud. Where are we as a society? 
And I want to emphasize one more thing here too, is that this is not a uniquely deep fake problem because if I did not have the delivery mechanism, social media, this problem would be more contained. So you have to couple the ability to create content, distribute it to the world simultaneously, and then have the platform's own algorithms amplify this content because it's driving engagement. And that's the ball game, right? Produce, distribute, amplify, consume. And now we're in for a mess. So bringing this all back full circle then to our audience of who I like to call well-meaning strategic communicators, the people who are tasked with protecting important people and institutions, and in some cases, democracy itself, from misinformation. As we strive to keep the public informed and protect the reputations of those people and institutions, what are we left with right now? What is the best path to chart for a strategic communicator in the years ahead? Yeah, I think today, right now, the one technology that you could deploy is what I was mentioning earlier, which is the C2PA work, which is that if you want to protect your CEO, what you do is you say every time he or she speaks publicly, we are going to record them with a C2PA compliant device. And it's just software that runs on your phone. It's nothing fancy. Every single piece of public statement will be recorded, cryptographically signed and put on a centralized ledger where you can determine what they said. And if you don't see that there, you should be suspicious of it. So that's a way of protecting high profile users. There's other problems you have to worry about. People are using deep fakes to interview for jobs. People are attacking financial institutions with phone calls from high value customers saying, oh, I'm locked out of my account. Can you please reset my password? You've got to figure out how to control the validity of information coming inside of and outside of your company. You've got to control reputation. People are going to try to damage your reputation because they don't like you. Your CEO said something they don't like, and they are going to create fake content of them. And here's the thing. Everybody today is vulnerable because every single CEO, I guarantee at a Fortune 500 company, has public images of them, public videos of them, and public audios of them. And once that is out on the internet, you now have a vulnerability. So I think Today, the only real way to protect that because it is a big internet and it moves very, very fast is to authenticate the things that you can control and message out. If this does not have the C2PA compliant signature, the stamp of approval, the security, well, then you should be suspicious of it. By the way, I don't think that solves all your problems because the reality is, is there's a lot of people out there who say, what do I care about cryptographic signatures? It's fake because I know what I know. Because when we do enter a world where anything you read online, any audio recording, any video, any image, any live Zoom call can be fake, nothing has to be real anymore. You get to deny reality. When we were building the project, we spoke to a fantastic scholar and lawyer, Daniel Citron, who talked about the liar's dividend. And her concern was by destabilizing our landscape of truth, it means that you can plausibly deny everything. And that is what we're more scared about than the deepfakes themselves. Fran Panetta and her co-director of the MIT Nixon deepfake, Halsey Burgund, say they're currently working on a new installation aimed at raising awareness of the deepfake threat. This one will put willing participants into the video itself, which will be generated in seconds on site to demonstrate just how far the technology has evolved. They're currently seeking partners and financial support for the project. But Fran also said something that stunned me literally speechless. 
And let me just preface this clip by saying, I've been doing this for 20 years now, and I can count on one hand the number of times that someone said something that surprised me to the point where I just had no words. Also, we need to remember that it's kind of everyday women that are the victims of most of the deepfakes that are out there, like 94% or maybe even more of the deepfakes that are created are revenge porn videos of innocent hmm. women. And so it's quite easy to- 94%? Yeah. And it's really easy to think that this is all about big names, celebrities, politicians, democracy. These are like really big problems, but actually it's a lot of innocent women who in a very, very large scale, over 80,000 deepfakes out there who are the victims of this technology. And I think it's really worth remembering how it is everyday people and women who are, who are very vulnerable to this. That just makes my skin crawl and my blood boil. That's, yeah. th I mean, I I hadn't even fathomed, and maybe it's because I'm not. That's, that's disgusting. Wow. Yeah, there's a there's a marketplace for these on the dark web. That you know, it's not really that hard to and not expensive. Remember what I said about this story taking on a life of its own. I was caught completely off guard by the fact that this deepfake technology has been used almost exclusively to victimize women up to this point in history, that while we may worry about existential threats to society and reputational threats to important institutions, for thousands of women, this isn't hypothetical. They have been victimized in the most invasive way imaginable. There was dozens upon dozens of pornographic sites that had my images on them, my details on them, and doctored pornographic images of me on them. So coming up after the break, we meet Noelle Martin, a young lawyer from Australia who's using her first-hand experience as a victim of maliciously wielded deepfake technology to fight for global legal reform and justice. That's coming up in just a minute here on Lead Balloon. This is Lead Balloon, and I'm Dusty Weiss. In the world of professional video gaming online, the streaming platform Twitch has made overnight sensations out of dozens of young women, and more broadly, many other gamers from all demographic categories, who stream themselves playing games and have amassed, in some cases, tens of millions of followers and undeniable celebrity status in that world. Well, just about two months ago, a headline-making controversy erupted in the Twitch community over deepfake pornography featuring the likenesses of non-consenting women streamers. Using now commonly available deepfake tech, some lowlifes on the internet had synthesized pornographic videos of a handful of these streamers appearing to take part in all manner of explicit acts. And in the fallout of these revelations, the women found themselves bombarded by direct messages, screenshots, and abuse stemming from the deepfake porn. One prominent victim, known as QT Cinderella, angrily took to her feed in tears and put the entire internet on blast for a culture that seems specifically engineered to victimize women. And it should not be a part of my job to have to pay money to get this stuff taken down. It should not be part of my job to be harassed, to see pictures of me nude spread around. It should not be something that is found on the internet. And the fact that it is, is exhausting. But this is just one high profile example. And as we already discussed, while this kind of thing is becoming increasingly common, 
What gets lost in the conversations about streamers, celebrities, institutions, and even democracy itself, is that the vast, vast majority of deepfake victims are actually just regular people. Women, specifically. And that deepfake porn of non-consenting women accounts for about 19 out of every 20 deepfakes on the internet. Yeah, this is the thing about the issue of deepfakes. Since it was popularized in around 2017, when the news broke about the story of the Reddit user, the username Deepfakes, had been creating fake pornographic videos of celebrity women, this tool, this technology, has been and has continued to be predominantly used as a weapon to abuse women, to create fabricated pornographic videos of women, sometimes to silence, to humiliate, to intimidate journalists, activists, ordinary women, celebrity women. Noelle Martin is a lawyer and activist from Perth, Australia, who, about 10 years ago, discovered that her face had been photoshopped into pornographic images and distributed across porn sites. Making a stand and speaking out against this form of abuse, she's been subjected to increasingly obscene and increasingly complex forms of deepfake pornography. But she hasn't let that silence her. Not only has she been a part of efforts to provide legal recourse to the victims of deepfake porn, she's become an internationally recognized speaker on the subject. And I think the numbers of the statistics are shocking so far, but I think that actually doesn't tell the fuller picture because, you know, there, there are times where women might not know the content is out of them. And so there's a lot of that happening on top of, of what we know today. Now, you became engaged in this against your will, essentially. The story that you have to tell, what you have been subjected to, it's its truly horrifying. How did you discover that you were a victim of deepfake pornography? Well, it started off uh, around 10 years ago. I decided to Google myself when I was 18, and I saw that there was dozens upon dozens of pornographic sites that had my images on them, my details on them, and doctored pornographic images of me on them. And over time, that only escalated in nature and in gravity and how graphic they were. I ended up speaking out publicly and fighting for law reform here in Australia. And that only, as you said, put a target on my back and has led the perpetrators to create deepfakes of me. So they created one deepfake of me later on in around 2018. As the technology evolved and became more easily accessible. Yes. And so they created a video of me that was verified to be a deep fake, depicting me having sexual intercourse. And the title of the video had my full name in it. And then there was another video that they had created as well. And that was technically what they would consider a cheap fake. So a more crude version of a deep fake. And it's a video of me falsely depicting me performing oral sex on someone. And so they escalated the abuse over time. I'm the first person to cite the internet as a real toxic waste pit of deliberately abusive sociopaths. (laughs) But other than the fact that you just spoke out against this form of abuse, why were these people targeting you for this? This is it's just hair raisingly horrifying. Well, I think in the beginning when they started targeting me, obviously I don't know because I don't know who the perpetrators are. And then when it came to deep fakes and the videos later down the track, the motivations 
were knowing that I was speaking out and very public about this, that I think that they wanted to taunt me and to intimidate me to stop what I was doing in some way. They saw you taking power against your abusers and were essentially trying to take the power back in their own crude way. Yes, and that's that's their way of trying to be like, we don't care, we have no regard for you or the laws and we're just going to continue to do what we are doing because we can get away with it. It absolutely destroys your life and it's a life sentence. What people might not understand because... I think there's this misconception about issues that happen online that it's it's online, it's it doesn't affect you as things would in the real world. It's some might say, oh, it's not really you, so why are you so upset? But the thing about this issue is that it's permanent, effectively, for me. The way that they've misappropriated my name and my image and my likeness and my dignity and my autonomy and agency. It's a permanent misrepresentation that's publicly accessible for everyone forever in perpetuity. And it is extremely damaging to go through. But the sad thing is, because this has happened to me over years and just escalated over time, it's almost become normalised. The deepfakes, I felt more angry at the audacity for them to do that rather than feeling all the emotional pain because I had already gone through that for so long. In the face of that emotional turmoil, Noelle says the decision to speak up and fight back was one that she struggled over. It's definitely been a tough battle. It wasn't something that I wanted to do or thought I would do at all. Even speaking out, I know people say that's something that they might not have done in those circumstances, but it, it definitely wasn't the first thing that I wanted to do. It took a long time to reach that point because there was literally nothing else available. There were no specific laws, there was no justice, there was no recourse. The things on the internet were just proliferating and amplifying and there was nothing that I could do except to try and reclaim my name that was being taken away from me and fight for justice because I wasn't the only one it was happening to. And people didn't seem to talk about it um, in the media or just in general. But I, I was heavily involved in the laws changing across Australia in certain states. New laws were introduced, making it a criminal offence to distribute, to record and to threaten to distribute or record intimate images or videos without consent. And that was really great in terms of setting the standard for society and the community being like, this is not acceptable, this is punishable and we don't tolerate this abuse. And now I've gone on to try and speak about this publicly and globally. And so I've spoken to countries all over the world in, in news media and I'm trying to essentially urge for countries to criminalise this, to act upon this, to be more aware of this and the harms that it causes people. I've spoken to the FBI and Homeland Security so it's good that people at the highest levels are at least focused on looking at this issue. And you've certainly become a leader in this space, and, and I'm glad for that. But over this same time frame, we've also seen some other very high profile women victimized by deep fake porn. You know, Hollywood actresses, Scarlett Johansson, Taylor Swift, Aubrey Plaza. How does that impact the battle against this kind of abuse? It does ultimately put a lot of media attention on the issue, especially when you have high-profile cases, celebrity cases of this, 
and there's responses by those people to the issue. It makes people more aware of of what's happening. But I think what that has done in some ways made the broader public think that this issue is so far-fetched that it wouldn't happen to everyday people, that this is something that might only happen to celebrities or to people in the public eye, but that's not the case. I mean, this is something that is happening to everyday people and can theoretically happen to anyone. And then once it's out there, that can potentially ruin your entire life. And that's sort of exaggeration to say. I mean, that is literally the world that we're living in. So given the creeping and universal nature of the threat here, what do we need to do as a society to protect people and especially people like you from this sort of abuse? Well, that's a really big question, and it's something that survivors, um, academics, policymakers are really working on. And so there's been recent summits, actually, in the US of survivor activists and people in this space from all over the world who have come together to try and chart a global path forward because we need to act on this. And so you've got different layers to this. There's not going to be one solution But ultimately, you need to have greater education about this digital literacy. People need to be aware of what can happen, what the threats are. You need to have stronger laws at the baseline, criminal laws in every jurisdiction around the world. And you also need to make sure that there's other avenues for justice civilly. And you also need to have, you know, potentially regulators established, regulators established that can help people take down the material Because what we're seeing is a lack of action from these big tech companies. And you also need to have a lot more accountability for the bigger hubs, the the tech companies, you know, the porn sites as well, that are helping enable and facilitate this abuse. So there are a lot of different possible solutions that we're all working on trying to implement them. You're right. That was a big question. (laughs) And uh, boy, if you didn't have a perfectly bulleted list of really big answers... But even as she advances the cause in one area of emerging technology, Noelle Martin has her eyes on the potential threats of another emerging tech, the so-called metaverse of online virtual reality. Effectively, my research was looking at Meta's plans to build the metaverse and how they're doing a lot of work effectively engineering human bodies into these avatars, 3D avatars of people. They're replicating human beings down to their pores, their hair strands, their eye gaze, their body movements in order to create this computer-generated universe that feels real, where people can communicate and work and socialise and all that in, in the coming years. And one of the, I would say, inevitable harms of this is how it's going to be used, misused and abused, and how women are going to be the targets of harms that I don't think we've seen before. Right. And especially in in the misappropriation of, of people's identities and the abuse of women, if what we're dealing with today is the fabrication and the misappropriation of people and women in 2D, I really am concerned what that would look like and how that would manifest in 3D form. Right. And does this new piece of technology just become a new venue for perpetuating the sort of abuse that you sustained? Yeah. Yeah. Can I ask you, 
You mentioned that you never found out who your abusers were or what their real motivations were. You've, you've just been left to speculate, and, and so you find yourself the victim of this nameless, faceless mob on the internet. But if you had the opportunity today to speak directly to the people who created these images of you, what would you say? Uh, I mean, I've thought about this. I think there would be a lot of uh, curse words in what I would say. Um, but I mean, I just don't know if if I, I don't know if I would even waste my energy. I mean, that's a pretty big statement in itself. Yeah. Yeah. Because, because I guess it is what it is. I've, I've had to almost make peace with what's happened for the sake of my sanity. Yeah. Because how do you make people who habitually dehumanize other people recognize the value of a human life. Yep, that's that's exactly right. Noel Martin, you're a lawyer, a researcher, and an activist from Perth, Australia, courageously leading the battle from the front of the lines against deepfake pornography that victimizes women in the real world. Thank you for your bravery, and thank you so much for talking to us here on Love Balloon. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you as well to Dr. Hani Farid from UC Berkeley. Also, Fran Panetta and Halsey Burgund, co-directors of the Emmy-winning In Event of Moon Disaster Project featuring the Richard Nixon deepfake. So beware. <laughs> We're all about terrifying our audiences, yes. We'll scare you straight. And I have to note here that Fran, Halsey, Hani, and Noel are all delightful, fun, and funny people with great senses of humor. And, and normally we try to keep this show kind of light, But the dour tone of this episode, that's not on the guests. And I like to think that it's not on me. It's strictly on the subject matter here. But if this episode didn't drive it home, this technology is an imminent threat for us here in the world of strategic communication. Take it seriously. Start paying attention. Listen to the experts and above all, have a plan. Because a year from now, we are all going to be working in a very different world now that this genie is out of the bottle. I promise something a little more light and fun is coming up next month. So do follow Lead Balloon in Apple Podcasts or whatever your favorite podcast app is. And check out PodCamp Media on social. Lead Balloon is produced by PodCamp Media, where we provide branded podcast production services for businesses. Our podcast studios are located in the heart of beautiful downtown Milwaukee, Wisconsin. But we work with brands all over North America. PodCampMedia.com. Music for this episode by Falls, Midnight Noir, Memory Theory, and Imperial Glow. Beatrice Lawrence was our researcher, and I was the producer, editor, and writer. So until the next time, folks, thanks for listening. I'm Dusty Weiss.